Welcome back to this month's episode of The Beauty in All Things. You join me, Alistair Moore, Head of Gardens and Estate, in spring at Heligan. I'm in the productive gardens and the air is full of birdsong and hope. In this episode, I'm handing the reins over to two very special guests. Heligan's own Tim Smith who's been talking to biologist Merlin Sheldrake. Sir Tim Smith, KBE, is an entrepreneur, author, educator, motivational speaker, social campaigner and co-founder of the Lost Gardens of Heligan. Born in the Netherlands, Sir Tim came to the UK as a young child, eventually studying archaeology and anthropology at Durham University before a 10-year career in the music industry as a composer-producer in both rock music and opera. Merlin Sheldrake is best known for his mind-expanding, erudite and lyrical book, Entangled Life, which describes how fungi make our worlds, change our minds and shape our futures. Merlin is a biologist, writer and speaker with a background in plant sciences, microbiology, ecology, and the history and philosophy of science. He received a PhD in tropical ecology from Cambridge University for his work on underground fungal networks in the tropical forests of Panama, where he was a pre-doctoral research fellow of the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute. He is a research associate of the Vrije University Amsterdam, works with the Society for the Protection of Underground Networks, and sits on the advisory board of the Fungi Foundation. And here they are now. Here we're walking into the gardens, literally within about 10 feet of where, in 1990, I cut my way in. And um, there were brambles up to about five, six metres across the entire site and lots of drunken-looking trees that had been blown over in a hurricane some days before. But underneath all of that, the path we're working on, walking on was just hidden, covered in about 18 inches of leaf mould. Um, and... It was full of life, full of life. And one of the reasons we're talking about gardens being full of life, of course, is that we've got our wonderful guest Merlin with us today and we're very keen to have a chat about what being full of life means and the fact that on, on the surface we've got all the, you know, the mammals and the, obviously you know, the, 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 lots of mammals and the insects and things, but the thing which is so interesting is how is this life force here actually kept together what is the cohering if that's the word the cohering force the system that that enables everything that dies to become life again and go round and round and round because we're about to go into the vegetable garden which when we restored it was the only working vegetable garden in the whole of britain uh, that was open to the public and i'm just fascinated to hear about What's going on in the soil? What sort of forces are being released by the tilling or non-tilling of that soil? 
Um, and I'd love him to comment about the uh, tests that we're doing, which are throwing over perhaps what the traditional organisations would have done, wanting to put history in aspect. We're trying to t capture the spirit of the head gardener as if he or she was alive in spirit whatever time it was at Heligan in terms of the century. And what would that look like? How would they operate? Because they were polymathic. These places were not for the third thickest child of the third thickest child. These were polymathic geniuses actually learning how to keep this extraordinary place not a place of death. Remember, before refrigeration, April was the dying month. You had to keep things alive in sequence to feed people for 12 months of the year. And if you didn't, you'd go very, very hungry. So let's talk to our man, shall we? Because he knows a thing or two. I love so much what you say, Tim, about these sites of experimentation. You think, uh, we think about the sciences as being really professional disciplines that happen in very segregated departments with professors of this and professors of that but it's only quite recently that that happened and um, even in Darwin's time Darwin was an amateur he could afford to be because he was independently wealthy but he many of his correspondence he, he, you know, he had amazing correspondences with pigeon fanciers with turnip breeders with orchid breeders with all sorts of hobbyist naturalists and they talked about the most extraordinary things and the observations of these remarkable people dotted all around the place in this country and in other countries informed many of his uh, ideas um, which then went on to be so influential so these many of these big moments in the histories of the sciences have come about through through people like head gardeners or or junior head gardeners or playing around, experimenting, working out what works here, when, how, why, just by, um, by, yeah, by observing, by recording, and by trying different things out. So very glad that you're doing this here. Brilliant. Well, the this that, that Merlin is alluding to is a bed here in which Alistair, the capo di capo of Heligan, has been trying to explore what the truth is of no-dig gardening as against digging gardening, as opposed to how much ad additions, how many additions you put into the garden by way of nutrient replenishment or fertilizer or whatever it is. And if you turn around, you'll see a whole range of beds trying to do things. And when we, I'm, I'm hoping we'll bump into Alistair at some point, and when we do, it'd be really good to ask him uh, how. Uh, effective he thinks it's being as a, as a starting proposition. The one thing he did say to me at the beginning was that you, you can't do it over just one season because it may take a while for the soil to adjust to its new status and maybe Mel, you could tell us about the new status I'm alluding to it as if it was like a purchased thing, but under the soil here, you're, you, you're a wizard in terms of knowing what might or might not be going on. Could you tell us a little bit about what you think is going on, at least as far as you know? Well, I imagine different things are going on in each of these square plotlets that we see, um, because that's the point that there's these four different treatments, as I understand it, and some of them uh, involve doing nothing, and some of them involve digging in a layer of manure. So that's a lot of disruption, but you're also burying the manure within the soil and where it might be useful for the plants and some of them involve no digging and so there'll be much less disruption there and uh, some of them involve I think adding some well, I can't remember what it's called 
some other kind of soil that's been created through some decomposition process elsewhere. And so I think the main idea is just no digging. And the no digging is, has become something that people have talked about a lot in the last few years um, because digging turns out to be very disruptive to, to the many lives taking place in the soil. And there are, are all sorts of ways to be alive in the soil. These are such busy, busy places. And there's so many different kinds of environment in the soil. Even if you go for one millimetre, choose any old square millimetre of soil, and then go five millimetres away from that square millimetre of soil, and the chances are that that square millimetre of soil five millimetres away from the other square millimetre of soil, is in a totally different place. It could be a charged micro-carity, it could have a different kind of trapped bit of water, it could be full of different sort of nutrients. And, and so when organisms make their home in the soil, it's kind of like a giant coral reef. Um, and the structure of the soil is very important. And when we disturb that, uh, everything has to reset and recover. And that's not always a straightforward process. So the thinking with the no-digging is that it gives more time for the soil communities to create the world in which they all live and to do the things that they're best at. So I'm really interested to see how it works out here and what you find, because my sense is that there's a lot more experimentation on this kind of level, on this kind of garden level, is, is really required. I think, Tim, you should do a thing, because you know, obviously you'll look at how the plants grow, but I think maybe you could do a blind tasting you know how you have wine yeah. tasters yeah. so you get a panel you could be on it or you could have a whole load of people on the panel and you're all served double blind so the people who serve you these little micro portions of chard nothing else apart from steamed chard they don't know which one is which either so it's double blind and then you taste them and you have tasting notes you might say you know like uh, you, it might be very apparent to you that they taste different or the one tastes better than the other and you then can combine those tasting notes and, and verdict with other chemical tests the thing which interests me, yes, that is interesting, but the thing which interests me uh, even more than that is something you were talking about uh, when we were together recently, about the plants being a repository of various nutrients which big agriculture has tended, let's not be exaggerating, but it has tended to breed out in favour of sweet flavour, for example, that it makes them... Well, some people who have been critical of it would say uh, infantilizes the flavor side of it. But there seems to be an awful lot of evidence that the heritage plants that you see here at Heligan may have a much greater resilience to land to, to growing in unenriched soil than the traditional plant, that the non-traditional, the modern plants that are produced for us. And I know when we planted at Eden. Uh, of course, mycorrhizal association was then... I mean, this is only 23 years ago. Mycorrhizal association was seen as kind of like a dark art, you know, uh, with the tropical rainforest trees. But unless I'm mistaken, this last 15 years has seen an absolute revolution in your science in terms of understanding that almost every damn plant everywhere in the world is bonded, if you like, a bit like John Muir used to say, with every other plant in some way to do with the association with uh, uh, fungal structures. Could you perhaps riff on that for a bit? Because I think everybody would find that fascinating, those symbiotic, is that the right word, symbiotic relationships that are going on there? Yes, so it really goes back to the beginning of land plants, which descend from freshwater algae, which are kind of puddles of photosynthetic tissue floating around in lakes and rivers. And eventually these photosynthetic algae start washing up onto the soggy shores of lakes and rivers and are faced with whole new sets of challenges as they try to make a life in the open air. And the main challenge they find, well, one of them is to not dry out. Uh, another challenge is to how to find nutrients in the, in the 
the soil. This is a new thing for them. And so it seems that they partnered with fungi at these early, these early moments. Um, and the fungi behaved like the root system of the plant, providing nutrients and water from the soils in return for fats and sugars that the alga made in photosynthesis. And the, the fungus behaved as the root systems of these early plants for tens of millions of years until plants could evolve their own roots. And so right from this early stage, what we call plants, which are really algae that are evolving to farm fungi and fungi that are evolving to farm algae, these organisms depend on each other. And so today, they're what we call mycorrhizal associations. And they're also endophytes, fungal endophytes, which live inside plant leaves and shoots. There are some plants that don't have mycorrhizal associations, but even those plants have other types of endophytes that live inside their roots uh, and play potentially in very important roles. A very ignorant fellow here. Endophyte. Inside plant. It's just a fungal endophyte. It's a fungus that lives inside a plant. Oh, right. Okay, so I'm glad I asked that. That is actually a very cool instruction into how plants became plants. And I think every child in the world, in fact, every adult in the world should hear you speak about these issues now these associations can i start sounding a bit science fiction just in my ignorance when we had the pleasure of having a a glass of wine last night you were talking about the word host uh you talked about uh the human body playing host to a an enormous range of bacteria of every description to the degree that in fact that which we call human is in a minority and yet we find it such an odd thing to to talk like that, yet we mistreat that host brutally. Is there a parallel that can be made that doesn't feel like it's hippy-dippy between the way we might treat our soil in a cavalier fashion in the same way as we might treat our bodies in a cavalier fashion and thereby create an out-of-balancedness? This is a terrible and inarticulate question, and I'm sorry that you've got a host as bad as me. Could you do the best with what the curveball I've just thrown you? <laughs> of course. Um, I didn't think it was a curveball. But, um, so I think there are real parallels between, I think of the soils as the guts of the planet in some sense, and there are parallels between 20th century industrial agriculture and modern medicine in the sense that much of modern medicine evolves with what's called the germ theory of disease, which thought of any microbe living in and on your body as a a potential agent of disease. And um, it turns out that's not true, and that we have huge swathes of uh, of what we call us are actually um, bacterial and fungal, and we wouldn't be able to grow and behave as we do if we didn't have these partnerships. Um, Same as the soil. And so 20th century industrial agriculture more or less considered soil to be a lifeless place apart from those pests and pathogens that needed to be killed. And so both, you know, you can understand where both perspectives came from arising at the time they did, but both have led us into trouble. Uh, And if you have a um, treat soil as a lifeless place and read plants which are just responsive to huge inputs of, of phosphorus fertilizer and nitrogen fertilizer and, and that are uh, fairly useless at forming relationships with symbiotic mycorrhizal fungi, then you'll end up in the kind of crisis that we are in right now. And so I think uh, returning the idea of a living soil to our minds it, it is by no means some hippie thing. It's just biological reality. That's brilliant. That's, that, that, I, th- I think that is so clear and actually so exciting that it's about the rightness of things which I think is very reassuring especially as we stand here in this vegetable garden where it does feel right after many many years of 
creating soil, a terroir, as they would say in France. And I'm intrigued that after so long of artificial nurture, because the weird thing here is it hasn't had artificial fertilizers and nitrogen uh, uh, fixing. You've had the, the system of crop rotation, of course, but you've got two meters of soil here that has had human night soil put into it every year. You've got seaweeds are put on it. I mean, it's been lovingly dealt with. So what intrigues me now is my next question. I'm taking a run-up to this question. Is this soil two metres deep, which has been lovingly made over... Well, if we include going back to... Well, let's call it best part of 230 years. It's been a thick soil being built up year after year after year with additions. How do you think that competes with an agricultural field that's had the sprays, the whatever, whatever? Do you think there could be a middle... I'm asking you to speculate unfairly. Do you think there could be a middle ground here? Or are the functions of the soil in here replacing some of the natural functions of the um, uh, 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 mycelium in the soil here, which are not broken up? Or do you think it would enable mycelium to form very quickly once it's... Could you... Well, you dig me out of this jam. <laughs> bad you're, you're, you, first of all, I think that your nice two-meter-deep human night-soiled soils are um, going to be quite a different place to the desert that's been pumped full of synthetic fertilizers for the last few years, uh, for the last few decades, and which has been opened up by the removal of all barriers like hedgerows, and which has been swept yeah. um, and scoured by winds, and which has um, fine dust-like particles remaining. I think that's very different from your your two meters of of lush soil here. But I do think that so so first of all that. Secondly, that even though you've been adding to this soil your two meter soil and you've been turning over and you've been doing whatever you've been doing, you're adding this in the form on the whole. I imagine as organic material. Yes. Something that was once alive. Yes and in all its complexity. And that provides food for rich microbial communities to do their work. And all those rich microbial communities will, will be playing their part in big you know, waves of ecological succession of uh, soil um, animals as well as uh, all, sorts of, all sorts of complex soil food webs. So I imagine in there will be a very rich and exciting place to be alive in the soil. I imagine the big, vast um, desert um, that's been drenched with synthetic phosphates and nitrates for the last few decades would be a very dull place to exist in the soil. Uh, and I think that the and that, that flower bed that hadn't been treated quite so heavily as your nice two-metre-deep beds would be also a, quite an interesting place to exist in the soil because it hadn't been so disturbed. Um, so it would be a different kind of place to be. I'm not sure if that's very helpful. No, no, it's great. It's great. And I've got the, the last killer question, I hope, well, I could actually talk to you all day, is we're now looking at the thick loam out there how f- f- the, the the world of, of, of mycorrhiza mycelium is well you yourself have put it in the spotlight the lens of public attention to something that they've never thought about before they have no sense the public I'm, I'm hoping they're as dense as I am in terms of the speed with which how having the soil like that having it double dug the season is starting things are planted and the rest of it the damage that's been done through the double digging in terms of breaking up the threads of mycelium 
right? So we're imagining it's like a battlefield out there, but they're, they're still alive, but they're chopped up. Is that right? Yeah? Mm -hmm. Okay. Now the things are planted. We've done that early damage, but is the health of that soil capable of enabling the mycorrhiza to reconnect really quickly in such a way that the wound isn't as it would be in an industrial landscape? Yes, I, I would say that is a fair, um, that's a fair statement um, because there are, um, we presume, in that rich, well-fed, well-nourished soil, uh, quite diverse communities of, of fungi, bacteria and mycorrhizal fungi which, um, which, are capable of, which are capable of coming back from disruption uh, that you've caused. And I also assume that the varieties you're planting there are not varieties that have been bred um, have had their symbiotic faculties bred out of them. Um, and so I assume that the plants that are going to be growing there are plants that will more readily form relationships with the, uh, with the fungi and the bacteria that are there. Um, so I would say that you are... Uh, my, my hunch would be that you're right there. Um, and I suppose the hunch of the no-dig community would be that, um, that there would be something to gain from, from not digging that. And maybe that's true. And that's why your experiments are such a timely thing to be doing right here in this place, because yeah, yeah. you need to know whether it's true here in this soil. You know, so I, I'm, I'm very excited to see what you find. Oh, that's brilliant. Well, I'm looking forward to speaking to Alistair in just a minute. I'm hoping that the podcast is uh, generous enough to allow me one last question. Um, there is a, a book called um, The Knowledge by Lewis Dartnell, which is predicated that it was Apocalypse Yesterday but your task today is not to survive. It's not a survivor's thing. It is to thrive. And he says the things you need to know uh, are other than you need to be able to throw a rock through a supermarket window to steal cans for the first month. But the next thing you need to do is to find good soil and learn how to till it and grow things. And the second thing after that that you need to know is to get a hold of heritage or heirloom plants because they are able to live in land that is not artificially enriched and will feed you, whereas if you were dependent on the modern crops that are grown in our open field systems, we would starve because they're addicted to the petrochemical in inputs. Could you, sir, as my last question, tell me, is Lewis Dartnell's point a good one? <laughs> I think so. Um, I, I would agree with it, uh, broadly speaking. And, and, yeah, you can think about these... these varieties of plant that have been bred to respond to high inputs in these open field systems as, as addicted. And you could also think of them as spoilt, spoilt youngsters who have, have not had to build the kind of relationships that they have evolved to build, um, that they're not used to doing that. They're not used to fending for themselves in these bustling systems. And, and so, yeah, that's the last kind of crop that I would look for in that disastrous scenario. I'd want something that had arisen before those disastrous techniques had become mainstream. Brilliant. I'm so pleased. I'm so thrilled. And thank you for your great answers. Can we now put ourselves out of a bit of misery by... Um, we're hoping that, that Alistair has been um, sequestering himself in here with Carl. Hello. Oh, look, they're there. Oh, gosh. Look, they're looking a bit sort of romantic Lady of the Lamp with, <laughs> with, a, with a hurricane lamp in the back Where? of the potting shed. But... Um, that's, a, that's actually a bit like Cluedo, isn't it? In the, <laughs> with a hurricane lamp in the back of the potting shed. Ah, but what we've got, and you're not going to expect us to say this, is what we've been talking about, and I think there's a lot of value in revisiting this, is molehill soil. 
and that's what we've got here and Carl has been entertaining and educating me greatly about the value of the the molehill but also I think fascinatingly there's a little ecological engineering going on in terms of pasture Carl I'll shut up molehills well as a as a as a gardener you you're keen on your molehill soil because you've got it in the pot here and you'll be using it for growing on um the the reason that it's so attractive in many ways is that looks good doesn't it does it feels wonderful it feels good it's been so this has been restructured by the mole as it's dug its burrow um which Mm. is its habitat so the the mole's digging the burrow um and then the worms and beetles and grubs and things that it likes to eat will fall down into the burrow and as it tunnels up and down the burrow day on day it will hoover up clean up the the insects and things that have fallen into that burrow but of course if you make a tunnel the stuff that you've moved to create that has to go somewhere so the mole is pushing it up onto the surface as a mole hill rather akin to some of the earthworm casts that that certain sorts of earthworms um, produce now the thing is it's been dug through by the mole it's been clawed with these um, fantastically adapted front paws of the mole that have got little sharp nails and that's combing the soil through and restructuring it and aggregating it to provide this lovely fluffy soil that all gardeners and growers know is kind of how you like soil to be. The other thing, of course, is that it's free from any things that the mole would like to eat. So there's no insects, there's no grubs or worms or larvae in there. It's all been cleaned out. So you're not going to get your roots nibbled by those, those root grazers with this. The caveat, of course, is that it's still full of seeds. Um, because the mole is uh, carnivore, it's not going to be eating seeds. So when you're using it for your potting, etc., you're going to get um, other plants germinating and you're just going to have to pull them out and live with that, but small price to pay. In ecological terms, of course, that's rather different because the mole here that emerges in the pasture is a nice, fresh, insect-free uh, patch of soil. There will be seeds in there that have not seen the light of day for a long time and will germinate. So you'll get um, a res- an, a, an emergence of new plants growing on that lovely, fresh, aerated soil, and that will increase the botanical diversity of that sward and pasture. So whilst most people would think about the mole as just burying and making this moving stuff around in terms of the burrow, it's also restructuring at a higher ecological level there by producing these these molehills. And obviously, as boring. Mr. Gardener type, I get irritated by the molehills on our one area of spacious lawn. So though the, the, the soil's fantastic and I love it in the pasture for exactly those reasons you were saying about developing our sward in a more biodiverse way, on our lovely florist green, I'm kind of keen to keep the moles out. Love the worms, keep the moles out. So we are experimenting with these sort of sonar devices that are uncomfortable uh, for moles and perhaps uh, encourage them to go towards our fields rather than our lawns. But taking that idea of sound and soil and sound and the natural world, I I wonder, Merlin, if you've got any thoughts about the sound of soil? Well, I mean, soil is a horizonless place. It's very difficult to use light if you're a dweller of the soil. Um, because there isn't much of it. And so um, it's also very uh, usually a wet place, which means it's a very good conductive medium for sound. Um, and so 
I spend some time with my brother who has hydrophones, which are underwater microphones, and we dig them into the soil, and we, we have headphones, and we listen to uh, what turns out to be an astonishing racket um, <laughs> going on underground. It's very hard to say what's um, making what noise, but it doesn't really matter for the purposes of these, these listening sessions. It's, it's more about um, just paying attention to the busyness of, of what's taking place below the ground, and, and quite how many lives are uh, making sound and, and also we assume being affected by sound. And we need, you know, termites and termites and some ants have stridulations which they use to communicate with one another and it's very possible that sound plays a life uh, in the role of a fungi and bacteria too. There are very little work has been done on this. So, yeah, I imagine your, your dastardly <laughs> mole repellers are, are, are really uh, a bit painful for, for the moles and, and perhaps for other organisms too. It doesn't sound very wholesome of you to, to chase them off. Well, it's, uh, to be fair, it's not very wholesome of us. And um, it's really, it's a one area that we have as a sort of amenity space for folk. And so we're just trying to discover there's plenty of other wonderful, <laughs> wonderful spots in the in the estate for them to to frolic but i know we were we were talking briefly earlier carl about sound and soil yeah this is an, an emerging research area actually rel- relatively recent in soil systems and um some scientists are thinking about um, this from two perspectives one um as merlin was mentioned intrinsically as a potential Signaling, mes- signaling system between organisms um, or a means of organisms detecting the circumstances of their environment. But we could turn it round and think about it in research terms, um, a sort of micro-seismography. So could you use, at a, at a, you know, like the geologists use for prospecting um, for oil fields and these sorts of things at a macro scale, using contemporary technology, could we scale this right down and use it perhaps to inform us about soil structure or soil architecture, the spatial arrangement of those pores, which is so critical to affecting how soil works, um, as a means of measuring that and perhaps assessing you know, the, the state of the soil. And uh, most interestingly, in a non-invasive or non-destructive manner, um, because, of course, what soil scientists have spent centuries doing is tearing soil apart to try and find out how it works. And the one thing that soil... The one reason that soil works is because it is a spatially connected, integrated system. So this is very interesting from a research perspective and possible application too. So early days, um, watch this space, but this is what keeps scientists occupied, interested and going. And there's some actually very exciting work that's been done in the, in the ocean systems by acoustic ecologists. Uh, and there's some work by a chap called Steve Simpson, and they were recording the sounds of healthy coral reefs, which are very different and the kind of sounds that you hear when you record dead coral reefs. What they found is when they played... So this is a bit like this this idea that we are learning about these ecosystems by listening to the soundscapes that are, um, are made there. But what they found is that when they played the sound of healthy coral reefs back to some dying coral reefs, some keystone species started to return, some fish that grazed on some algae, which um, set off a trophic cascade, which helped to return these reefs to a healthy condition. So it's possible, that is, of course, speculating that... Um, as the soil acoustic ecology field develops, there might be ways that we could even intervene to help um, into, uh, to, to tempt back, perhaps, um, so some keystone organisms and to uh, do some soil acoustic restoration. Now, this is, uh, this is pure speculation at this stage. Cool, huh? <laughs> 
Well, time to get back in the recording business, Tim, is it not? I think it's fantastic. The thing that really intrigues me is maybe in a thousand years we'll have the tools to find out that, to our horror, nematodes have been declaring love poetry to each other <laughs> since the beginning of time, and we just thought it was like farts. <laughs> I know. Wait, 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 you, you, you think about worms. What about worm grunting? I mean, people have known about you know, there are competitions where you grunt worms. Um, oh, Twitching, yeah, twanging, twanging. So worm, worm twanging, worm twanging is the is an ancient ancient art of of raising earthworms from the fundament, and it involves a a a, a twanging stick, apparently that um, you stick into the ground and then you um, vibrate it. As, and if you get the right frequency, um, then the worms or many of the worms will come come forth and and and, and appear. There are. Um, country tales of birds tapping their feet in order to make the worms rise. I had a PhD student who was studying um, worms for, for some time, and he, he poo-pooed this because he sat watching, worm, watching birds bouncing around for ages and didn't get any worms at all, and they'd walk five paces to the left, stand still, and then catch three worms. So I'm um, not too sure about that. However, there has been the world... There is the annual World Worm Charming Competition, which is held variously across the UK. And um, there, the, there is a series of plots, and you, you pay to go on a plot, and whoever gets the most worms out of their plot wins. What do they win? And um, uh, <laughs> Get their own twanger. Yeah, they, they, they win the golden twanging fork. <laughs> That's amazing. Now, this is what's called good radio. I don't know about you, but my fungal networks are certainly pulsating after that fascinating conversation. Thank you for listening to this season's episode of the Lost Gardens of Heligan podcast, Beauty in All Things. We'll be creating two episodes each season and follow the rhythms of nature over the course of the year. Look out for us soon as we celebrate solstice and high summer at Heligan. <laughs>